Fire truck. Oh, shut the, shut the heck up. What are you gonna do? That's dog abuse. Dude. Kevin thinks she can do something. She's not a registered firefighter. Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers. Welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast 72. Sometimes it feels like we're doing those marathon dances from the Depression, where the uh, last people standing won an award and everybody else, like, collapsed of exhaustion. Sidney Pollack made a movie called They Shoot Horses, Don't They? The only reason I say this is because we're actually recording two podcasts back-to-back today. But it is a joy to be speaking with everybody. The Secret Movie Club Podcast 72 is a new The Elements of Cinema. We are talking about producing pieces of cinema. Sorry, pieces of cinema. As I hinted at in the previous podcast, producing is in some ways the key. I mean, if you get a movie made then you produced it. If the movie falls apart at some point, it is unproduced or it did not get fully produced. So producers, what they do and why they get credit is actually so nebulous that we will have to get into all of that. But a producer at their best and most effective is in many ways the skeleton of the film, the spine of the film, for good and for bad. They're the money people sometimes. Uh, Sometimes they're the, hey, this is how it's getting done. I don't care about your creative personality and temperament. This is what we're doing. You know, making sure every day produces something recorded on film or digital. But who is with us today? Hey, it's Daniel. It's me, Connelloyd Cruz, the people's champion. And sorry, America, but Edwin is late. Edwin's making macaroni. I asked him if it was easy mac, and he said, yeah, I think so. And I said, one takes two minutes, one takes a half hour. Which one is it? Oh, here he is. (laughs) (laughs) There's our boy. Uh, Oh, hi. Oh, hi, America. Um aim like something uh my name is craig i'm the founder programmer of secret movie club this week on friday we are going to be showing ai on 35 that is the movie written and directed but sometimes people forget this spielberg's only taken a writing credit i think twice three times in his career one was on close encounters of the third kind one was on ai and he's about to take his third writing credit on uh, meet the fablemans or the fablemans whatever that movie will eventually get called about his is growing up in Phoenix and his filmmaking career. And I would wager, I don't know that this is true, but the dynamics of his family and being Jewish in a predominantly Gentile city. I can't imagine what it was like to be Jewish in Phoenix. But there are a lot of really interesting sort of Jewish creatives who grew up in, you know, Spielberg has Phoenix. Mark Marin was a Jew in Albuquerque, which I've always been curious about. And then, of course, Bob Dylan and the Cohen brothers were all Jews in Minnesota. There are other interesting stories with everybody. But anyway, there you go. We're doing AI, which was the only movie that Stanley Kubrick actively produced, but did not direct or write. And that was because he passed away and Spielberg took it over. But prior to that, Kubrick had hired Spielberg. Kubrick said, you know, it's a very famous story, but Kubrick in the early 90s had been developing what would become AI. And he felt he was going to repeat himself a little bit. And he felt, I really have to devote the rest of my life to what became Eyes Wide Shut and what he had hoped would become Napoleon. So he thought Spielberg would be the perfect director for it. And he wanted to produce. He wanted Spielberg to direct and come and see the results. It got made, and that'll be Friday. 
And then on Saturday at the Million Dollar Theater, we're doing a double bill of Saving Private Ryan and the Thin Red Line. All this is on 35 millimeter. My favorite Terrence Malick is the Thin Red Line. I always weep uncontrollably when I see that film. Then Wednesday, we are going to be doing Veronica Voss. We're going to end our BRD Fastbender trilogy. That was one of the last movies he made before he died. He only made a few after Veronica Voss. Then we are doing on Thursday our A24 mini fest of Spring Breakers, Harmony Corinne's Spring Breakers on 35 millimeter and Jeremy Saulnier's Green Room, which is incredible. If you've never seen Green Room, it is brutal and nasty and has like, I think, two of the great shock scares of the last 10 years that are pretty horrific. And you get Patrick Stewart as a neo-Nazi, a little added bonus. It's it's a dynamite picture and a nasty picture. So come see it. And as always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com and you can check out everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. Hopefully by the time you hear this podcast, we have officially finally gotten all of our merch in order. So if you have an interest in getting a shirt or a mug or a bumper sticker, a button or a t-shirt, you can. Also, Daniel and I, God willing, in the next week or two, we'll finalize all the things with the film festival. And we're going to bring in all the people who got picked and record them in studio, not our studio, but actually Channel 35, Los Angeles' Channel 35 studio, and then you'll get to see all of their shorts, and we'll uh, shout it out in October. So, there you go. Today, we're doing a Pieces of Cinema where we're talking about producing, and the producer, just let's get to examples rather than me speaking nebulously about this. You know many producers' names. For instance, one of the original most famous producers was David O. Selznick. And David O. Selznick produced Gone with the Wind. He produced Duel in the Sun. He produced a whole bunch of movies. And actually, he was one of the few producers where you would go see a Selznick picture. And he was almost known more than the people who got the directing credits on his pictures. And Selznick was known for intelligent, literate adaptations. He was kind of the Scott Rudin of his day, if that producer name means anything to you. Selznick produced Hitchcock's first American film, Rebecca. That's a very famous Selznick. One of the few where the director and the producer, sort of even though they may have clashed, were both equally known for that picture. And Rebecca got Best Picture without Hitchcock getting Best Director, which is sort of an interesting thing. And then uh, you just go forward a little bit and there would be famous producers like Edwin would know. Who do you think I'm going to name a very famous Italian producer? Who am I going to say? You know, I already know who it is. King Kong 76. Why did you say it? Why did you say it? Then why, 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 did, why did you have to do such I a build-up build instead up, of Greg, just rat-a-tat-tatting in a jazz percussive up, way? I'm going to say it. Hey, I didn't I, F it up, know, I'm going to say it. This I'm is still it. gold. Let, What's let, happening let right now, it. us talking over let each other is Robert Altman gold. Let me say So just give the name. Do it. Dino motherfucking Dilarentis, the greatest Italian producer that ever freaking lived. Suck it, Craig. And the guy who gave Kyle McLaughlin his nickname, Kale. Because you couldn't pronounce Kyle. And uh, as you heard from Edwin's enthusiasm, Dino is uh, known for both good and bad movies. But Dino is the reason we have Blue Velvet. He's also the reason we have Dune. Both great movies. So Dino De Laurentiis was beloved by everybody. And he's a fascinating character. Then, of course, and I'm not going to give this to Edwin. I'm going to punish Edwin right here. Daniel, we also have two very famous Israeli producers who would create 20 years of amazing canon cinema. And we know them no, as... No, no. 
No. Daniel, who, no. Uh, we know the mask. Ad, Connor still can edit you out. You can say whatever I'm you God, want. I'm you don't have post, post-production control. Okay, Daniel, what are their names? Don't say it, Daniel. I'll say it. I'll, I'll, I know you live, what Daniel. What are their names? I, I know we live. A certain animal would disappear, Daniel. Oh, he threatened your dog. Are you going to stand for that? He threatened your dog. Daniel frantically tries to figure <laughs> out. I have, yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> That's the best part of it. Oh, all right, Edwin, who is it? Menahem Golan and Yuren Globus, two of the greatest Israeli producers that ever came out of Israel. Made some of the greatest movies ever made, nonstop, and those are the only producers that care about the art, the filmmaker, the creation, and they just love f***ing movies, man. Not true. Those statements that Edwin just said are not entirely true. But Golan and Globus are known for making both really enjoyable 80s action schlock like Invasion USA. And they also made the uh, So Bad It's Good musical The Apple. They also made movies like Barfly and John Cassavetti's Love Streams and Runaway Train and Masters of the Universe, which I'm determined to show the He-Man movie from the 80s where they had no money. So they basically set it in a small town instead of uh, in He-Man's like planet because they didn't have the money for any of the production design. And moving on from there, in recent times, I would say we've actually entered, although I actually would argue that we're moving out of it now. We were in for about 10 years or 20 years, I would say the era of the producer again, not of the director. If you would say that the 70s were the era of the director, I would easily argue that from uh, when Harvey Weinstein and Miramax showed up on the scene and came to power in the mid-90s through to really the rise of Netflix and Apple. And I would say now we're living in the age and I don't know how long it'll be, but we're living in the age of streaming where I think streaming services are really dictating what gets made. But people like Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson, Harvey Weinstein, Scott Rudin, Joel Silver, any number of producers were really dictating. And actually, I would say Kevin Feige. I would say besides streaming, we're also in an age it's streaming on the lower end and then IP on the higher end. And Kevin Feige is kind of an interesting bridge between those two things and a good example of a quote-unquote creative producer in the sense that those movies are definitely some of those movies more than others are their director's movies but as a whole it's Kevin Feige's thing absolutely when I think of the Marvel accomplishment through Endgame I think of Kevin Feige I don't really think of any individual director and what Connor said is great because in the era of the producer a really great producer could make an original movie and I would actually say we're now at a point where the studios are so uncertain and confused because of COVID and streaming that you, you could be the most powerful producer in the world, you probably still have to have, as Connor was saying, IP, which is an intellectual property title that they feel they can pre-sell. And many of the greatest directors eventually produce their movies. When you look at Hitchcock, it was produced and directed. When you look at Spielberg, it's produced and directed. When you look at Clint Eastwood, it's produced and directed. Don Siegel produced and directed. So many directors realize that in order to make the movies they want to make, they have to at least be a active producer on the film. They're uh, there to do is uh, get stuff done. You know, they go up to the main honcho of the studio execs, make sure, hey, get this guy to make this picture, not produce the crap out of it. Me personally, I think the greatest producer that ever lived is Dino De Laurentiis. I, w- I would say the guy from the Canon Group, but me personally, I think Dino De Laurentiis is the best producer that ever did. Produces some of the best movies throughout the 60s and 70s and throughout the 80s. His producing kind of slowed down. When he hit the 90s, we talked about this, uh, Dune, 
where, you know, Dino produced that for David Lynch. And basically, the studio screwed over David Lynch and screwed over Dino that tried to get it made. And next thing you know, look what happened. 1986, Dino De formed the Dino De Entertainment Group, created his own studio company, made whatever he wanted, and that's what a producer would do to get the director his creative art on the screen the way it's originally wanted. And that's a great story because David Lynch eulogized Dino De Laurentiis. When Dino De Laurentiis died, David Lynch was one of the speakers at his funeral. And when you think about what a disaster Dune was in terms of how Lynch views it, the fact that his relationship with the producer and Lynch has always said, he's like, yeah, it was a nightmare, but I've always loved Dino. And I immediately felt comfortable with him when I came into the room. And then De Laurentiis let Lynch make with Final Cut Blue Velvet. I think that speaks to the intelligence of certain producers as well. Man, the producer, you kind of hinted at this earlier, is maybe one of the more nebulous things we've talked about. In the sense that when you watch a movie, you'll see a lot of people listed as different versions of producer, and they mean a lot of different things. If someone's listed as an associate producer, that could literally mean nothing. That could mean literally they got that title as opposed to getting paid an extra 10% on something. There's also the weird thing with executive producers in movies are usually the money people, so to speak, but it's kind of switched in TV the meanings of the two. I have experience with producing on like the smallest level of my own stuff, but the really big stuff, I took a class at UT about it and it was just a lot of paperwork. (laughs) (laughs) What I remember it being a lot of looking at prices of things online and writing (laughs) those prices down on spreadsheets and adding numbers. It's definitely the more business-oriented part of filmmaking, definitely the more left-brain side of filmmaking, but you need that, I think, in in a genuine way, not out of a way to restrict people, but out of a way to sort of understand how you can get stuff made, actually just be able to make stuff. Because if you don't, if you don't know how to actually make stuff, then it doesn't matter how good your ideas are. <laughs> you're just sitting there, and just with ideas, and they're good ideas, but gotta make them. Often the producer, not always by any stretch, but often the producer can be the person who discovered the property or optioned the property, by which we mean the producer will option a script or an article or a story. And the producer will say, there's a movie in here. And then the producer goes about trying to attach a director, attach a star. And the producer puts together the package in the best sense of the term. The producer is there from the very beginning And the producer is there at the very end. Even after the director leaves, the producer will be there through the afterlife of the movie to international, to streaming and Blu-ray, to its life for decades beyond. So the producer can often be the person attached to the movie the longest as well, because they're the one that brought the team together. And then when the team disbanded, they still shepherded it along. But as Connor's saying, too, sometimes the producer, you buy off someone because you don't want them involved in the movie and they owned the property and then you say yeah you can get producer credit just you have no control so it, it, it you just never never know whoever's credited most primary as a producer is usually more involved whoever's credited last as a producer is whoever is probably maybe somebody like i don't know how much Zack snyder had to do with the suicide squad james gunn's movie 
as much as he was just part of the DCEU thing and certain credits had to carry over in contracts, if I had to guess. When the credit block happens, usually the people who get the producing credit just before the director credit. Yeah. At the, in the end credits, it would be the director's credit first, then the producers. In the opening credits, it would be the producer credit, then the director. But whoever those names are next to the director were probably the most important people. <laughs> and But often you get like five cards, five title cards, as you're saying, of like produced by produced by produced by whichever one's furthest from the director might have just picked up the director's kid one day and instead of paying them they gave them an associate producer credit on thor ragnarok in in the era of um crowdfunded filmmaking the content of producer because it's so unknown and what it can actually mean is a thing you offer people that will give you a lot of money it's like oh if you do that we'll give you an executive producer credit and you're like oh my gosh i'll be on imdb here's five grand so it's a powerful a powerful name i think you guys nailed it my day job is a producer i produce for a commercial company and we do a lot of different stuff ranging from commercials to internal stuff to narrative things on the side Learning sort of what that role means for me was there's a concept of a line producer and that sort of overlaps into a producer, which is essentially in that role, you are someone from pre-production to post-production. You are working with the creative people in every aspect to make things happen. So a line producer or producer is someone involved creatively because you are working with the director, you're working with each department head to make their visions happen and you collaborate with them and adjust things to make it work. And it depends on the level of production because you definitely have people underneath you that will do specialized things. But I think the producer is sort of just like this overall problem solver of here's the things that want to get done creatively. Here's the person that's going to try and make that happen to the best of their ability. I don't think it's the same thing on any movie, but having a good producer is fundamental to getting your project made. And I think it is because of that thing you're talking about, left brain, right brain. You need someone who kind of lives in both worlds because you need someone that creatively understands what you're going for, but also can logistically figure out if it's realistic or how to adapt it to still get the thing essentially done, but also come in, you know, whether it's money or safety or, or whatever. They're sort of, they bring things back down to earth, but they can't let you know that they're doing that. They have to be like, that's a great idea. Let's figure out how we can do that. And then you sort of like walk, they're kind of, they're like master manipulators. <laughs> Yeah, this is a bit of editorializing because I am a movie maker and I'm determined to make feature films. I heard David Lynch say something once that I loved, and he said, the job of a director is talking to everybody on your team and trying to make sure that you're all heading down the same road to the same town. And he said, it takes a few conversations. But once everybody's heading to that same town on that road, you can give people a lot of freedom because you're all heading in the same direction. You all know the town you're trying to get to, and you don't have to micromanage the production design or the editor or whatever, because no one likes to be micromanaged, but you're all working to a common cause, as I think what he was saying. And I think that probably a producer at their best is able to manage personalities manage egos. It's probably no secret to people listening to this podcast that, and I, times may be changing, but in movie making, creative people often felt they had a right because they were creative to throw tantrums or to get stressed out or to scream. And by the way, there are a lot of producers who are even worse and use a lot of abusive behavior. Famously in recent years, obviously Harvey Weinstein for the sexual abuse uh, and then Scott Rudin, just for general, no sexual abuse there, I think. Just abusive behavior. Big time 
a-hole. And listen, making movies is stressful. And that's not to excuse the two names just mentioned at all. But I mean, sometimes people are just yelling at each other and tired and, you know, every day is costing you a million dollars and something doesn't work. But I always think of a great producer as the calm head in the room in a, in a strange way. And a great producer will say, OK, and I think it goes to Daniel. I can only think of an example would be a director comes in if they're not also producing and they say, I have to have a crane shot. I just have to have it. And this is the shot I storyboarded. And then the producer knows they don't have the crane (laughs) and they don't have the money. But a good producer wouldn't say, hey, F you. You spent all your money on this. You don't get your crane shot, blah, blah, blah. A good producer, I think, would say, look, here's where we're at. Now, I think I understand what you're saying is you want to go from here to here. Could we do that on a boom? Because we actually have a boom in the grip truck. And if you're willing to work with this boom, let's talk to the DP. Let's see if we can get the shot you need. And we can make our day. And actually, we'll probably save a little money. And we can put it to this other shot that you've been talking to me about and get like 50 more extras. A good producer is trying to work with you. A good producer is trying to work with everybody and be like, hey, this is the movie we all said we wanted to make. And I would imagine a Kevin Feige, maybe at his best, is that kind of producer or a Dino De Laurentiis at their best or a Kathleen Kennedy at her best when she was working with Spielberg. You know, this is the road we're going down. I think everybody at their worst in movies, and this is not exclusive to the producer by any means, and I worry about this in myself hugely. I think at its worst, it becomes an ego fest. And at its worst, it's like, hey, I'm the producer. I write the checks. F you. This is what we're doing. (laughs) And it's not about if that makes the movie good or not. It's that you write the checks and you get to tell those people F you. So being the biggest fish in the pond, a petty tyrant sort of thing. And that's anybody. That could be the star. You know, that could be the director. That could be the DP. Anybody could be that person waving their ego around. And that's super destructive to good filmmaking. I think I would argue One of my favorite producer stories that I heard, and I don't know tons about them. I wish I did. Uh, There were these Egyptian-born brothers, the Hakeem brothers. I hope I'm saying it right. And they produced a lot of pretty famous movies of the 1960s, including a Louis Bunuel movie, Belle du Jour, with Catherine Deneuve. And they did a Ripley movie, a Patricia Highsmith, talented Mr. Ripley movie called Purple Noon with Alan Delon. And the story comes from that. Back then, you know, Alan Delon was just this huge actor, and he shot with them for about 50% of the movie. And when they had 50% in the can, he went to the Hakeem brothers and he said, everything's going to change. I want more money. I want this. I want that. And if you don't do it, I'm walking. And if I walk, you don't have a movie because I'm the reason people are seeing this movie. And the Hakeem brothers said at that moment, they realized what a producer did. They had to look the biggest star in the world at the time in the eye. And they had to say, fine, you effing walk. We're going to sue you for breach of contract and we'll shoot the movie anyway. But you don't tell us what to do. You signed a contract. You agreed to be in the movie and you're not going to pull this power play just because we have 50 percent in the camp. And they said that DeLon sulked for a day and then the next day he did the rest of the movie. And I think that a producer has to deal with heart attacks all the time. A producer has to deal with constant heart attacks and they have to just say, this is how we're making this movie. Because making a movie is a bit of a miracle. It's famous. It has something to do with Jean-Luc Godard and the involvement of the Canon Group. From what I've read, and also it's in the documentary, that um, Menachem Golan and Jaron Golan were at the Cannes Film Festival and they bump into Jean-Luc Godard, who happened to be there, and basically said, I want you to make a movie for us. And literally took like a toilet paper roll 
and basically made him sign a contract saying you will make this picture for us and this will be the film called King Lear and which does not have a release. Uh, the movie is pirated and beginning of the picture, it starts up with Menahem Golan yelling at Jean-Luc Godard saying stuff about it like, what are you doing? Why is a, why is a picture uh, over budget? Where can we see the dailies? And, and that's how the movie starts off. And apparently, uh, I think Euron Globus has the signed contract from uh, Jean-Luc Godard on a piece of toilet paper and he will not give it away. That's like a piece of artifact that he has. So which is pretty funny. And this is all done in a, in a hotel room somewhere in Cannes. Edwin, you're talking about a version of the napkin deal. I don't know that it works that way anymore. I don't know how many people have made napkin deals, but I mean, Spielberg made a famous napkin deal and I'm trying to remember what it was, but there used to be a time where the big rollers in movie would just grab a napkin at a dinner, turn it over and they would say, I guarantee you a budget of $10 million for this property. And then the director and the producer would sign and they'd go to it and they'd have a napkin. And the napkin was the contract, though they got a bigger contract. I think it sort of makes sense that there's all these issues around people with that type of power because it's this opportunity that you have your hand in so many things financially and creatively. You're sort of in all spectrums of production. And I think especially... When you have something like a Marvel movie, say, a producer's on board before a director a lot of times, so they're working to also bring on the director. So I think there's things where a director's made something and they're going to bring something to a producer to help them make it. And there's the reverse, which is a producer is working with the studio to bring someone in to make their project. And so there's all these different varieties of things. And I think the power that comes with that is why unchecked people have taken advantage of it to manipulate and exploit people who, uh, quote unquote, below them who want to succeed and make a statement in this industry. So it's a danger to it, too. But on the good sides of things, I think it's this really interesting position because of the lack of clarity of what it is because it's just a little bit of everything they're sort of the go-to person of what do i need to know about this i think it's interesting that there are we know some of them because really they definitely have some type of creative say in things i would imagine because you hear about directors who are like well the producers made me reshoot this the producers made me change the ending they did this and this and this so there's that type of power over a film so when you hear about these great producers i think they're doing something right or the producers that directors return to frequently to use because the creative collaboration also works from a business perspective. I think that's really interesting as a, as a dynamic. One of the most famous long-term producer-director relationships actually is Ron Howard and Brian Grazer. Brian Grazer has been producing Ron Howard movies since the very beginning of Ron Howard's career. I think that's an example maybe of somebody who is taking the bullets so that the director can direct the movie. And whatever you think about Ron Howard movies, that's been a very that's productive... There you go. Corn Dad. Yeah. I like some people who are not fans. <laughs> uh, no, but listen... Again, I want to be truthful here, and I hope I'm always truthful. I don't even think I need to caveat that, but I'm not the hugest fan of Ron Howard movies, and this is no disrespect to Mr. Howard, but I admire anybody who makes a 30 or 40 year career in this industry and gets to do what they want to do. And the fact that Ron Howard has been able to make every kind of picture he's wanted to make from adaptations of plays to sci-fi movies, to fantasy movies, to genre pieces, to period pieces, I think speaks volumes about how well Ron Howard and Brian Grazer know how to operate in the industry. And they have 400% of my respect for that. If I personally don't necessarily vibe with their aesthetic, that's me. That's not good or bad. That's just me. Always love Ron Howard for doing the voice in Arrested Development. He ties that show together. I don't really any stories, but I was just thinking about producers whose work I, I seem to really 
like. So I'm really just going to be kind of listing some people, but I was thinking about Deborah Hill, who is an early collaborator with John Carpenter, who produced the first three Halloween movies, including writing the second Halloween and produced Halloween 3, Escape from New York. She produced Clue, which is the best movie based on the board game there will probably ever be made. You know, rest in peace, Deborah Hill. And produced The Fisher King, which is a good later era Terry Gilliam movie. I guess it's not that much later, but maybe one of the most famous producers that we've talked about before, George Lucas, who produced so many childhoods in this country. I was going to say Francois Coppola and the George Lucas duo producing uh, team. I specifically love those duos because Kagishima, Mishima, and Tucker, a man in his dream. I got to work with, I was a script reader and shared an office with Fred Roos who was a producer for Coppola and I think what was their company was called um, American Zeotrope. And getting to see sort of how he talking about sort of the stuff he did and how he still operates because he's in his late 80s now. I think he's like 87 or 88 and still going strong producing. He produced um, he's still involved in like Sofia Coppola's stuff and he works with like restorations of Francis Ford Coppola's things that are sort of getting pressed out. Outsiders got a 4K. But just like that track record conversation Godfather Apocalypse Now and I mean I think it speaks a lot to when the best picture Academy Award goes to the producer is such an interesting thing to me they're saying this as a whole goes to this is going to be presented to this one person because they oversee everything it's the only thing I can really determine to be that the reason it would go to that versus like the director because they sort of oversee everyone and, and since film is not singular it is this collaborative thing last people i was going to mention because i think it's one of the most interesting examples is the british eon productions which is essentially a family company which is weird to think about eon is the company that's produced the james bond movies the entire time started by albert broccoli and harry saltzman and Albert's daughter, Barbara Broccoli, is now in charge, along with Michael G. Wilson, who is Albert's stepson. You would think something like James Bond, it is this giant franchise. You know, going back 20 years, it would have been the most successful franchise ever. I think certain things have surpassed it now because of the era we're in. But it's also, it's a family company, which is an interesting dynamic to think about. And they've had their own interesting relationships i always think it's interesting that thunderball and the fallout from that where kevin mcclory i guess got drunk with ian fleming at one point and they <laughs> were goofing around and making stuff up and then he accused ian fleming of taking ideas from that and putting it into the book thunderball and he was able to win a lawsuit so he partially owns thunderball or totally owns it and so when they wanted to adapt it, he was the producer, the main producer on that one, uh, even though the company was, Eon was still the company. And this eventually led to them phasing out Spectre from the James Bond movies, the organization that Blofeld heads. The International Ring of Spies. Because it originated in Thunderball or the name originated. There's some like tie to it that it's the rights. And then this is why there was the uh, Never Say Never Again, which is just a remake of Thunderball in the 80s. And this is why they didn't reintroduce Spectre until the last movie, because I think the rights finally reverted. I think Kevin McClory might have passed away. I actually have been playing around with programming Never Say Never Again. 
Just FYI, I'm actually a big fan of that movie. <laughs> like I said, next year, 60th anniversary. I would argue that Never Say Never Again is pretty much better than any of the Roger Moore movies of that period. Although I was listening to a podcast where someone was saying Octopussy is great. And I saw Octopussy when I was six. So I have to revisit that. But one of my favorite directors of all time is John Ford. Uh, and I've said that many times. And uh, John Ford has produced many of his own pictures like Howard Hawks did. But there was this period where John Ford was making movies for 20th Century Fox. And the head of 20th Century Fox, a very famous name a lot of people know, was Daryl F. Zanuck. His family, like Richard Zanuck, I think was involved in the production of Jaws. Richard Zanuck's son produced that movie Get Low with Robert Duvall and Bill Murray. And so the Zanucks are like one of those dynasties. But Daryl Zanuck was the head of 20th Century Fox. And he would pick properties for John Ford. And he was really instrumental in checking Ford's indulgences. So if Ford was going to get too sentimental or too whatever, Zanuck would really tighten the script for him. Or Zanuck would really say, you know, we got to do this. We got to do that. And Ford was very blustery. He didn't like that. He didn't like people doing that to him. But I think he put up with it from Zanuck because he respected Zanuck. And he knew that Zanuck knew what he wasn't good at. And he knew that Zanuck was going to protect him by being like, you know, hey, man, <laughs> you're getting a little too sentimental here or like, hey, this, you know, didn't you forget this scene? Or I think we need to be a little more streamlined here. And the movies that Ford made with Zanuck were Young Mr. Lincoln, Grapes of Wrath, um, How Green Was My Valley, uh, My Darling Clementine. I mean, some of Ford's absolute greatest, greatest pictures. I mean, and Ford made great pictures without Zanuck. I mean, he made Stagecoach without Zanuck and he made Quiet Man without Zanuck and he made Searchers without Zanuck and he made Liberty Valance without Zanuck. So it's not like Zanuck was the secret sauce to John Ford. But I also think as a filmmaker, you shouldn't shy away from somebody telling you what you're good at and what you're not good at. And somebody being like, hey, man, you know, you're super talented, but you have a tendency to have bad endings or you have a tendency to go on a half hour too long or like, why don't you check that? And I think that Zanuck, you know, in that Ford collaboration produced some of the most beautiful, tightest, most poetic Ford movies that are also incredibly disciplined. And I have a tremendous respect for that. So... Moving on, pop culture final thoughts. I just want to little, little recap the, just you know, a little message to Ron Howard. I love you, Ron. You're a great director, one of my favorite. Whatever Craig said is insane, doesn't know any better. You know, he just, he just, this is a guy, man. Ask Ron Howard for forgiveness for my stupidity. No, can't, man. You, you're, 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 you already did it, man. You're, you, you failed. You failed the test. You had to live with your sins. But anyway, didn't do much, didn't do much. I just watched a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie the other night called A Line Heart. It was pretty badass. You know, there's one scene where he arrives in New York City, but in reality, they're doing a shot here in L.A., which is noticeable with the streets as being a L.A. native for so many years. You recognize some things. And uh, I saw Frost Nixon like six times already. Even when I go to sleep. Which I haven't seen and I heard is quite good. You know, Mike, Michael Sheen has a lovely face and uh, I, love, I love his hairdo. He's a pretty groovy dude. And uh, Frank Langella is great as Nixon, you know. Can we make a shirt in like a really kind of creepy font? Just you'll have to live with your sins. And then <laughs> Secret Movie Club podcast on the other side. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, be, be cool with that. I, I watched a ton of movies that Edwin recommended and they were all just abysmal. So I'm probably going to quit. <laughs> 
Secret Movie Club. Whoa, Wait, what did you watch? Wait, what did you even watch? I just can't keep pretending this is okay. I'm just imagining that we're recording this in the past. I'm just imagining what my next two weeks look like. Oh. Wow, what a left turn. I'm going to savor this moment if you're gone in two weeks. <laughs> yeah, my, um, in that regard, I, I just saw Shang-Chi in the future, and uh, I have opinions. And I also saw Candyman, which I also have opinions on. Nice. That'll be the feature. I haven't actually seen them at this moment. But I will have by then, to be clear. I'll just say one more time. If you're in California, please vote in the governor recall and vote no. And you can watch me play video games at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz. I've been projecting in the booth since uh, May. And we're about to do a projectionist workshop here in a few weeks. A lot of people are super interested, which is exciting. It'll be tough, though. We're not going <laughs> to. But yeah, people have to. I mean, it, it's stressful in the booth and we really want great projectionists so we can show prints from all, all over the world. But, you know, I'm in the booth and I enjoy projecting. It's actually also a lot of fun. But the more I do it, the more I realize what an important job it is and how much you need to know. You know, it's like being a really, really good mechanic. But, you know, you have to diagnose, okay, what's wrong with the machine today? How do I fix this thing? What is this? Like we had a lens that was soft this week. It was just going to take too much time for me to reset it in its casings. And I didn't have the proper tools. And I had to run one movie off one projector, which means that I had two minute uh, moments of black while I switched reels. So the whole thing could be in focus. And I had to make a decision, which was, do I try to just run both projectors? with half of the film being slightly soft or just own it, go tell the audience and run it on one projector and have two minutes of black and give everybody a free ticket. And I was anguishing about it because I hate doing it. And then I was like, the right decision is no one wants to see half the movie kind of soft. They all paid money. So I stopped the movie and I went out and I said, hey, guys, we're going to run the rest of the movie on projector one. We're going to be two minutes of black. You all get a free ticket. I'm so sorry. The lens was not cased properly. I'm going to fix it. And everybody clapped and everybody was down and they all stayed. No one walked out. And we showed the raid two on one projector. Everybody gets a free ticket. And I'm glad that that was the ending. I'm glad that was the ending. And the audience was super cool at the end, too. And the movie played great. And, you know, I'm quick enough that the in-betweens were not were like a minute, two minutes. But it nevertheless reminded me that anything that you want to do, and I th I'm thinking about this for filmmaking specifically, it just takes a lot of work and a lot of patience and you got to take a breath and you got to be humble and you constantly have to be schooled and have people tell you, this is how you do it. Oh, you didn't know about that. This is how you do it. And it's tough. I just realize I'm an impatient person. I guess that's the point of what I'm saying now is I realize on some level, I'm much more comfortable having a big idea. But when it comes down to having the micro patience that it takes to produce something great, I can get very fidgety. And yet you have to have that micro patience to produce anything great. And so that's what I'm struggling with this week. And I don't know exactly what that means other than I know that if I want to make great movies, I got to embrace the micro patience and the breath and like, no, it's wrong. <laughs> we got to reshoot it. No, I wrote this scene wrong. I got to rewrite it. You know, it's, it's just tough stuff. It's tough stuff. And it carries over into everything. So anyway, that's my thoughts. Thank you, everybody. As always, as we said at the head of the show, this Friday, we're doing the only collaboration Kubrick ever did with someone willingly. The Kubrick Spielberg Joint AI on 35. Saturday at the Million Dollar Theater. September 11th, we're doing Saving Private Ryan and the Thin Red Line on 35. Uh, next Wednesday, we are doing Fassbender's Veronica Voss on 35. And then Thursday, we're doing an 
Mini Fest. We're doing Spring Breakers on 35. Harmony Corinne's probably biggest hit, I think. And then Green Room, which is a movie I really, really love. Jeremy Saulnier, who did Blue Ruin, just his follow-up to Blue Ruin, is a nasty, violent piece of work that works really, really well called Green Room. And uh, there's much more. So go to secretmovieclub.com to find out about it. Write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. The episodes, as always, are edited by Connor Lloyd Cruz. And so our next podcast, Secret Movie Club Podcast 73, is going to be about our Dark Spielberg series. We're going to talk about his movie War of the Worlds, interestingly, which was a hit and had Tom Cruise. But over time, despite people's misgivings about the end, which we can talk about, and that's a criticism people level against Spielberg oftentimes, is that when he's making a dark movie, he really struggles with retaining that darkness through to the end. And War of the Worlds is no exception to that. Nevertheless, War of the Worlds is, I think, one of the most horrifying summer blockbusters ever made, bordering on an out-and-out horror film, I would argue. So we're going to talk about War of the Worlds and Dark Spielberg. Stay tuned for that. And that's it. All right, guys. Thank you. Got the program. Got the program. Save it one. for next episode. Well, I'm sorry. If you're talking about Sugarland Express, I actually tried to get Sugarland, and there's a story behind why I'm saving it for another time. Oh, actually, that's not. It's not Sugarland because I don't, I don't count that as Dark Spielberg. Lost World, Jurassic Park. Lost World. Yep, that's Dark Spielberg. Where Jeff Goldblum's adopted daughter gymnaticas a Velociraptor by doing a pole vault. That was pretty dark. Don't be that. <laughs> I'm going to have to live with my sins. By the way, I like Lost World. So just so you know, Edwin, I think the whole trailer sequence and the whole little velociraptors in the wheat field, I think it's all dope. So I don't have issues with Lost World. I love Lost World. So program it. I will, Edwin. I will. All right, guys. Have a great week. Peace. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye, I guess. <laughs>